Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. Good morning. For Every Day is Earth Day today, we have with us Dr. Elizabeth Burakowski. She is a research assistant professor with Earth Systems Research Center in New Hampshire at the University of New Hampshire. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we're going to talk about snow today, and I don't know if you know how things are here in Minnesota. Are you in New Hampshire right now? I am in New Hampshire, yeah. How's the snow out there? Well, in coastal New Hampshire, where I live, not great. And across the state, also not great. Okay. I was looking at a map this morning of um, model of the snow depth across the U.S., and it looks like we're about on par with each other in terms of departure from normal, which right. is below normal. Most people think of Minnesota, a lot of them think, oh, you're snowed under all the time. Well, this winter, we don't have a thing. It's been 50 in the 50s the past week, etc. And I was looking at some of your back research, and what you do is you measure snow depth and the impacts of the snow depth on what happens in our sports and yes. winter sports and things. And I've got a son who is on the Alpine ski team, and it's been an awful year, let me tell you that. I totally hear him, and I, I completely agree. Um, I've been skiing and snowboarding since the late 80s, and it has been quite a ride to see the changes over the course of my lifetime and also over the course of my scientific career. I mean, I've been measuring snow here in New Hampshire, and this past December, um, I started my measurements during my PhD in the winter of 2011-2012, and this past December was the first full month of December that I had where I didn't have any measurable snow on the ground. Well, it was really disappointing. Let's talk yeah. about that in, in the, the terms of climate change. You know, how is climate change affecting the winter temperatures and snowfall, and what are the predictions for how this trend is progressing, and how will this be impacting us in terms of snowfall in general? Well, across the United States, winter is the fastest warming season over three quarters of the, of the region. And the hot spots are in the upper Midwest and in New England. And that's concerning. I mean, it, we're both experiencing these very warm winters uh, right now simultaneously, but broadly since the 1970s, we're also both in hot spots for winter warming in the U.S. Um, for example, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Burlington, Vermont, and Concord, New Hampshire are all in the top five fastest warming cities wintertime in the U.S. And what that means for snow is that you see snowpack loss. It's a shortening of the snow season. So when we look at New England, for example, we're seeing a loss of about two to three weeks of snow cover. And the same is kind of happening across the Midwest as well. When you see warmer temperatures, you see a decline in the number of days with snow cover and also the depth of the snow cover. And more importantly, you're also looking at a change in how much water is stored in that snowpack. And you know, that happens to have an impact on, on farming. It has an impact on forest health. Um, so these, these changes are not just affecting you know, outdoor recreational opportunities. They're also affecting our ecosystem health. Oh, definitely. I'm, and I'm a gardener, so I've really noticed that as well. And now with this winter not having any snow, some say it's a result of El Nino, and that may be part of the weather systems. But you have been tracking this and see more as, as a trend and not just some blip because of El Nino. Yeah, El Nino certainly increases the average temperature globally and does have an impact on winter temperatures, but it doesn't explain all of the warmth that we're seeing. A lot of what we're seeing is the result of heat trapping greenhouse gases, and these were emitted by the burning of fossil fuels. 
So if we want to preserve our winters for future generations, what we need to do is reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. And that means switching over to renewable energy. That means switching over to much more efficient technologies for energy consumption and production. You know, there are people who say, oh, I'm glad that the winter's not so cold, but um, I think that that's maybe short-sighted in terms of, yeah, it's nice, maybe we can go out without our coats and things, but what does that mean in the long term? I like to think of this more in a global context. I mean, it is nice on those some days, you know, like in February when it's 70 degrees. I won't deny that the warmth <laughs> feels nice on your skin. Um, but when I think more broadly about the impacts, you know, the, the warm winters are, are symptomatic of a much bigger problem. And for some folks, that means forest fires. For some folks, it means coastal erosion and their home getting washed away. And for some of us, it also means a reduction in high quality, you know, access to food and clean water. And um, so having warm winters and, and feeling relief from the bitter cold is, is one aspect of it. But more broadly, there's also a climate justice issue that's associated with it. And largely that's the United States is responsible for cumulatively most of the emissions on Earth. And that's a problem. We need to be addressing that because we owe a climate debt to the rest of the world in terms of what we've emitted in the past. And that includes the folks that are being disproportionately impacted by climate change. A lot of the folks that are facing the most dire impacts in terms of, of flooding, in terms of forest fires, are typically the ones that have not been emitting fossil fuel emissions in the first place. Um, so I, I feel like there's, you know, there is an aspect that, that, you know, warmer winters can reduce an energy bill. But at the same time, there's there's a global context that needs to be considered here. You mentioned the Midwest is among the hot spots. What makes us a hot spot per se? Are we using more fossil fuels or something or why are we in that bubble? Yeah, so the New England and, and the Midwest being in the hotspot has nothing to do with really with how much we've emitted in the past. Carbon dioxide and other heat trapping gases are spread globally around the world. So what we emitted, you know, 50, 60 years ago is likely still circulating in the atmosphere and it's getting evenly distributed around the globe. And that changes on a seasonal basis. But overall, what we're seeing in wintertime in terms of our hotspot of warming, I, I don't think we really know exactly why these regions of the U.S. are warming so much faster than the others. Part of it might have to do with being at lower elevations. And part of it also might have to do with snow loss. Uh, when you lose snow, you're losing a very reflective blanket on top of the landscape. And so you can accelerate warming trends when you remove that reflective blanket and instead have darker earth Brown, brown soils, dark forest that's instead um, not reflecting a lot of the sunlight, but instead absorbing it. So it's a it's it's a problem. But I, I wouldn't say that there's a responsibility for the Midwest and New England to reduce their emissions specifically to um, address their own winter warming. It's a global problem and emissions need to come down globally. You mentioned something earlier and correct me if I'm right, how much precipitation is found in snow. I think you really analyze snow, the the texture, whatever it is you look at. What were you referring to there and how is that important? Yeah, the amount of water stored in snowpack varies. Uh, so fresh, light, fluffy snow that you might find in Utah typically might only be about five to 10% water. And a heavier snowpack that you might see, you know, late winter in Minnesota or in a really heavy wet snow event in New England, that might be closer to 20 to 30% water. If you're looking at something like ice, you know, there are air pockets that are in air bubbles in ice that make it somewhere around like 80% water. 
Um, so the amount of water that we store in a snowpack is going to depend on just how dense it is and how how much um, how warm that snowpack is as well. So as as the snowpack warms, it compacts and it becomes more dense, and um, that water does trickle through, and and it's going to infiltrate into the groundwater and into the soils. So it's it's a an important factor that we need to measure. Um, across the Western United States, they've got some really a robust network of automated measurements that are collecting data on how much water is stored in snowpack. And that's important because water resource management depends on it. But across the Midwest and in the Northeast United States, we, we don't have as many monitoring stations that are keeping track of the water stored in the snowpack. Um, so that's an important factor that, that we're trying to improve here in New Hampshire and, and across the Northeast um, and more broadly in the Eastern United States. So explain your research a little. You go out and you measure snow and are you just looking for the trends of how climate change is affecting it or what are you really trying to, to do or show? Yeah, I mean, so in Durham, New Hampshire, we're looking at how the snowpack is changing over time. So keeping track of it um, over the years. We're also looking at how the density of the snowpack is changing. So is it becoming, you know, a, a wetter, denser snowpack? Um, we're also looking at the effects on soils as well. Um, snow is, is a great insulator. Uh, when you have a snowpack that's, you know, at least six inches deep and, and has some air pockets in it, it's going to be a great place to help keep temperatures below that snowpack in a more um, stable temperature range. And there's a lot of critters that, that depend on that. They live in that area between the snowpack and the ground that's called the, the subnivium. It's a fun science word that just means the space underneath the snow. And they're relying on that place for stable temperatures. They're also relying on protection from predators. And when you lose snowpack, you're you're losing habitat for, for those types of animals that are relying on it. So mice, shrews, martens, any time, type of animal that can burrow under the snowpack. You mentioned things below ground and above ground. One of the things I think about are, are aquifers. Now that's something we don't think about because we can't see it. So is a snowpack on top, if we're not having it, is that affecting our aquifers underneath? And are we gonna be lacking water like some places out west are, for example? Yeah, so groundwater recharge, you know, does depend on, a bit on snowpack um, across the northeastern United States, much less so than rain infiltration. So, you know, the amount of precipitation we're getting is is probably contributing quite a bit more to our groundwater than compared to the western United States. Their groundwater recharge is um, not necessarily dependent on the snowpack, but they are their water resources and the filling of reservoirs is. So loss of snowpack in the western United States does affect your, your water resource management. Um, and in the western United States, you know, snowpack is a component of that. Having that annual melt cycle is important for recharging our groundwater supplies, in addition to precipitation throughout the year. And we are on our third year drought here in the Midwest. I don't know where you are. I know other places are too. Does that have anything to do with the overall change in uh, precipitation related to snow, rain, in all of the above? Yeah, I mean, I, the drought in the Midwest, I'm not as familiar with, so I, I feel a little uncomfortable answering that uh, question in particular. Um, but it would de be dependent on not just the precipitation and snowpack, it also is dependent on how warm the atmosphere is in summer. So what's the evaporative demand? How much you know water is being lost to the atmosphere through evaporation? That's another component of it. Um, but I, I'll admit I'm not as familiar with what's going on okay. specifically with the Midwest drought right now. Well, I know we, in uh, information that we received about what you do 
Elizabeth. It talks about your research is how the changing winters are affecting the winter recreation industry and communities that depend on winter tourism. Can you talk a little bit to that, how much of an impact it is making? Yeah, uh, so when we're looking at lower snowfall years um, across the United States broadly, this is a $20 billion industry for skiing alone. And that's a, probably a minimum estimate. Um, when you look at warm, snowy years, though, we, we see a decline in visitor um, in terms of economic activity on the order of about a billion dollars. So it's a pretty big chunk of change that you see less money circulating in a local economy due to a decline in skier visitation. Um, we also know that there's other sports that maybe aren't quite as large as, as the ski industry, but pond hockey, for example, ice fishing as well. Um, ice climbing, I've, I recently did a study on ice climbing in New Hampshire, and the folks that are guiding clients and teaching them how to ice climb are, are seeing impacts. We're also seeing impacts on, you know, ice fishing derbies are having to move to smaller lakes or, or being canceled altogether. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the lack of sustained cold temperatures to create safe ice conditions. Um, so any sort of economic activity that's that's being driven by that is, is going to be impacted when you have to cancel those types of events. And I would say there's, there's also a loss that you really can't put a dollar sign on. Um, there's the loss of, of community. There's a loss of, of cultural tradition that becomes associated with it as well. When there's subsequent years of, of continually having to cancel or postpone events, um, it can also be hard to get people into the sport or pass that tradition on to their kids. You know, I think about skiing in New Hampshire, you know, a couple of my son's lessons this year got canceled because of, of poor ski conditions or because of rain even. And, you know, sometimes I wonder at what point when it, when is it going to become like less likely that parents are even going to bring their child into a sport like skiing or ice fishing or snowmobiling if the conditions are just becoming so rare to even engage in that type of activity? And I worry about some of those going out of business. We've got a place here called Mount Cato. It's a, it's not a real big hill, but it's like our ski bump. But for us, it's our ski hill. Mm. And the, I don't even think the kids started until late December to even start the season when a lot of times, you know, much earlier than that, but the, they couldn't even make snow because it was too warm to make it. And so I'm just wondering, uh, are you anticipating that some of these recreational things, snowmobiling, ice fishing, et cetera, will have to move to other parts of the country even? Yeah, and I, I think we're, you know, we're kind of seeing that. We already saw the migrate, you know, we had to move the, the um, New Hampshire has a, a pond hockey tournament that's typically held on our large, one of our, our largest lake, Lake Winnipesaukee, and it had to be moved to a smaller lake. Um, because of unsafe ice conditions on the big lake. And, you know, we see that with um, ice fishing derbies as well. And it's concerning. I, I think it's a, a future that sports like snowmobiling, like ice fishing, where they don't have something like snowmaking as an adaptation strategy necessarily. Um, I think the ski industry is a bit resilient in that regard, but even they're facing troubles in terms of when they can make snow. Um, when we looked at the climate projections that I published in 2022, we were looking at what happens to the opportunities for snowmaking. And for some places in the Northeast, you're going to be looking at a decline in the amount of days that you can even make snowmaking on the order of 10 to 30 percent. And that's concerning. I mean, that's that's the shortening of the, the season that you can even implement your, your adaptation strategy for snowmaking. Um, but for other sports like snowmobiling, snowmaking is, is not a viable option. You simply have too many miles of trails to cover and, and we don't have the infrastructure to cover that. What is the predicted tipping point when even artificial snow will no longer be an option due to our rising temperature? 
And when you look at snowmaking operations, typically the most efficient snowmaking is happening at 28 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Um, so once you start seeing temperatures above 28, you can still make snow. It just becomes a lot less efficient. And when you consider what's getting put on the ground, um, at the end of the day, physics is going to win. And it's going to tell you that snow melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. So any snow that you make, if daytime temperatures are getting above 32 degrees, you're going to see some melt. And that's that's going to mean loss of whatever snowmaking you put down, machine-made snow. Um, so in that sense, there's, there's, there is a threshold. When that exact year will be um, is up in the air. We, we do see variability in winter temperatures. Um, but what we know is that you know, we in northern New Hampshire have not had a winter that's cooler than the 20th century mean since 2015. Wow. So that was nine years ago. We are and, talking. Oh, okay. I was going to say we are talking with Dr. Elizabeth Burakowski of the University of New Hampshire about winter sports and things like that. I'm just wanting to end on a note of hope. Is there hope? Because it seems like in your research that I was looking at the different studies, you know, the snowpack is getting less and less. So. Can you give us any hope at all? Or what can we do? Absolutely. I mean, I'll point out that the the studies that I had published on this and that a lot of folks have, have been publishing on, on the future of winter have been looking at what the 2021 policies are and beyond. So holding 2021 climate policies in place, what happens in the future? But we know we can do more. And we're already seeing more action on that front. Um, we know that, that solar is growing in a very big way and becoming less expensive than fossil fuels. And that that's, that's good news to me. Um, the World Energy Outlook published by the International Energy Agency of October in 2023 estimated that 2023 might've been our peak emissions year. Okay. And I'm looking forward to seeing the 2024 report to see like, was that true? Did we really reach our peak emissions? Are we now gonna start seeing a decline. And if we are, that's great news for the environment. That means that we are on the path to start riding the ship and to start seeing our winters be preserved. So it sounds like the hope is in taking this very seriously, maybe mandating some laws that will say we got to do this and get it done. And then it's not a matter of just thinking that it's going to happen because it's here. Exactly. And I think the positive thinking is also figuring out ways that we can help the folks that have the least amount of resources to adapt and mitigate climate change. So making sure that those clean energy and low cost technologies are also getting in the hands of the communities that need it the most. Do you have a place where people can get information or a, a resource that people can find out more about what you're talking about? Yeah, so the, one of the organizations that I've been working with for a long time is Protect Our Winters. Uh, ProtectOurWinters.org has a boatload of information. They have a new climate advocate handbook out. Um, so if you want to learn a lot more about climate and what you can do, that's a great place to start. Anything else we didn't cover that you feel is important to talk about? I always like to point out that winter sports in general, they, they tend to be uh, expensive and they tend to skew into a demographic of folks that are high earners. And I think it's important to recognize that the impacts on our winter recreation are, are one aspect of the global problem, but there's also a lot more that's going on that's threatening human health and threatening lives and homes. And we need to consider that as we observe these changes. So anytime I see a winter where I, I can't get in quite as many ski days, I'm also keeping in mind that some folks might have lost their home to a forest fire or that some folks might be displaced by, by coastal sea level rise. 
Um, so it's it's that winter recreation and winter warming is, is broadly symptomatic of a much bigger global problem. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Elizabeth Burakowski, for your time and keep up the good work and we'll hope to uh, see some more of what you're working on in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It yep. was a pleasure talking with Take you. Take care. Bye-bye. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.